Good morning. I'd like to ask you to join me in your Bibles in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 this morning. One of the expectations that comes with being a Bible teacher is that I know all the answers. And so people ask me lots of questions, and that's great. I enjoy answering questions, and many of us need help with some of the answers. I uh, saw some answers that children gave to questions in Sunday school and thought they were interesting. They said Noah's wife's name was Joan of Arc. (laughs) Solomon had 300 wives and 700 porcupines. Moses died before he reached Canada. So Joshua led Israel in the battle of Jericho. And a man is allowed one wife and that's called monotonous. <laughs> but I think just as some of us need help in ascertaining the right answers, some of us need help in asking the right questions. And I suppose the question that I get asked most often is this, what is God's will for me? How do I discern God's will? And I would like to suggest to you that that is the wrong question. You see, the will of God is well known. God has given us a whole book full of his will. If you want to know his will, get into the word of God. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 9, it says, He has made known to us the mystery of his will. God's purpose for our life, past, present, and future, is all laid out in the Word of God. We know His will. Now, we may struggle with specific choices at specific times. You remember Paul did that in chapter 1. He said, I'm going to come see you, and then he changed his mind and said, no, I'm not going to come see you. But the will of God in general is very clear to us in Scripture. In fact, if you want to see it in condensed form, it's in chapter 5, And verse 9, where Paul says, Therefore we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. God has told you what he wants your purpose to be in life. And your purpose in life is to please him. And how do we please God? Hebrews 11.6 says, Without faith it's impossible to please God. So how do I please God? I please God by trusting in his plan, his principles, his promises, his purpose for my life. I please God by doing what Paul tells us in chapter 5 and verse 7. For we walk by faith, not by sight. You see, knowing the will of God is not the problem. The problem is doing The will of God. Most of us know God's will or we're in the process of learning God's will. The problem is motivation. And so the real question is not what is the will of God? The real question is, am I going to do it? I can be honest with you. There are times in my life when I know exactly what God's will is. There are times in my life when I know that his purpose for me is to please him. And the way to please him is by faith. And I can even remember back to times when I've experienced so much joy in obeying him and so many blessings in obeying him. And I can know all of that. But when my eye falls on the lure of the flesh 
And when my eye falls on the pleasure of sin, in those intense moments, in the heat of battle, in the teeth of temptation, the question is not, what is God's will? I don't sit there and go, I wonder what God wants me to do now. I know what God wants me to do. The question is, why should I obey God in that situation? You see, it's a question of motivation. And there are two very strong natural motives. See if these don't resonate with you. Two strong natural motivations. And those two motivations are selfishness and peer pressure. Selfishness is the love of self. The bottom line is always, what do I want? And peer pressure is the fear of man. What do other people think? What are they going to say? And am I going to look weird in their eyes? What's the the crowd doing? I want to go along with the crowd. Selfishness and peer pressure. Love of self, fear of man. Think about the last time you blew it. And don't act like you're thinking that hard. It was probably yesterday. The last time you knew something was wrong and you did it anyway. Or the last time you had an opportunity maybe to share the gospel and you didn't grab that opportunity. Let me ask you this. What motivated you? What motivated you to blow it? I would suggest it was either selfishness. I know what God wants, but I'm going to do what I want. Or it was Fear of man. What will he think? What will she think? What will they think? Now, how do I counteract those natural motivations? Well, in chapter 5, verses 11 to 15, Paul gives us two new motives for our new life. The first motive is in verse 11 where he says, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord. It's the fear of the Lord. The second is in verse 14 where he says, For the love of Christ controls us. There they are. The fear of the Lord and the love of Christ. In contrast to my natural motive of fearing man, Paul says, I'm to fear the Lord. In contrast to my natural motive of loving myself, Paul says, I am to love the Lord. And he ties these two motives into two events. If you notice verse 11, the first word is therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord. He's looking back at verse 10, and what does verse 10 describe? The judgment seat of Christ. The fear of the Lord is associated to an event, the judgment seat of Christ. If you look at verse 14 and read on, he describes the cross. And so he ties the motive of the love of Christ in with the cross of Jesus Christ. Now today, I want to just look at the first new motive. Because we're going to take, I told you this this chapter was packed full of stuff. We're We're going to look at just the first motive this morning in verse 11. He says, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord. Now, somehow, it has circulated among Christians that fear is an improper motive, that we shouldn't fear God, 
that that was an Old Testament concept and we're now in the New Testament. That, 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 that fear was a posture under the law, but now we're under grace. And I think we've bought into the theology of the Wizard of Oz. Think about the Wizard of Oz. You've got some needy pilgrims. They're told to follow the yellow brick road, this narrow way. They follow this narrow way. They have all kinds of obstacles and opposition along the way. And then they get to the Emerald City with a gatekeeper to let them in. And when they get there, they find out that the great and fearful Oz turns out to be a little old con man. The big voice and the flames are all contrived. Is that our view of God? God is a cute little harmless man just pretending to be someone he's not. Well, listen to what the Bible says. Proverbs 1.7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Psalm 34.9 says, Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. Sin occurs in a man's life, according to Psalm 36.1, when there is no fear of God before his eyes. Now, what does it mean to fear the Lord? Well, Paul helps us with that in Romans chapter 8, and I want you to keep your finger in 2 Corinthians and look at Romans chapter 8 and verse 15. Romans 8 and verse 15. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, But you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Now that verse tells us this is not the fear of a slave. We as believers don't have the fear of punishment. 1 John 4.18 says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. And so we know that our fear of God is not some cringing kind of slavery-driven, punishment-driven, guilt-driven fear. It's not the fear of a dog cringing from a master who beats him all the time. It's not guilt and punishment because they have no place in our relationship with God. Our relationship, according to Romans chapter 8 and verse 15, is that of sons, and we call God what? Abba, which means daddy. So we as Christians have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. We have boldness to come before his throne. We can actually call the God of the universe daddy, and still yet, fear is a right and proper response to him. Look over at Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 28. Hebrews 12, 28. Therefore, it says, since we receive a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with fear and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. 
The fact that our relationship to God has changed does not mean that God has changed. He is the same one whose presence came down on Mount Sinai and caused the mountain to shake. And the children of Israel stood back and said, we don't want anything to do with him, Moses. You go talk to him. He's the same one who dwells in unapproachable light. He's the same one before whom the cherubim in heaven who have never sinned cover their face with their wings because he is so holy and so awesome and so glorified. And even though I have a new relationship with him, I have never to lose sight of who he is. Yes, he's my father, but he's also a consuming fire. I was driving into the office early this morning, and I heard this song on the radio, Awesome God by Rich Mullins. When he rolls up his sleeves, he ain't just putting on the Ritz. Our God is an awesome God. There is thunder in his footsteps and lightning in his fist. Our God is an awesome God. Well, the Lord wasn't joking when he kicked him out of Eden. It wasn't for no reason that he shed his blood. His return is very close, and so you better be believing that our God is an awesome God. Our God is an awesome God. He reigns from heaven above with wisdom, power, and love. Our God is an awesome God. And when the sky was starless in the void of the night, our God is an awesome God. He spoke into the darkness and created the light. Our God is an awesome God. Judgment and wrath he poured out at Sodom. Mercy and grace he showed us at the cross. I hope that we have not too quickly forgotten that our God is an awesome God. Our God is an awesome God. He reigns from heaven above with wisdom, power, and love. Our God is an awesome God. Our God is an awesome God. Our God is an awesome God. And fear and awe of him should always be mingled in our response to him. Acts 9.31 says, The church was being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Interesting combination. Fearing God and being comforted at the same time by the Holy Spirit. Philippians 2.12 says, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is working you. 1 Peter 1.17 says, Conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay upon earth. We are to fear God. We are to have an awe and respect and reverence for him, we are to tremble at his word because he is an awesome God. Rather than being influenced and intimidated by the fear of man, which causes me to think, what can I do to please them? I am to be motivated by the fear of the Lord. Such reverence, such awe for God that I never want to displease him. I don't want to do anything but obey him. And this motivation is tied to an event, the judgment seat of Christ. Look at verse 10 again. We looked at it last time in detail. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or or bad, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord. One day, 
we're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Notice some key words here. One is all. We're all going to be there. Another is must. There are no exceptions. He says each one, we will stand there individually. We will stand there personally. You're not going to be able to hide behind somebody else. And he says we will appear. That word doesn't just mean show up. That word appear is a strong word that means make manifest. It's the same word used in John 3.21 where it says he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifest as having been wrought in God. So it's a word that means to reveal something for what it really is. When you stand before the Lord, there will be no pretenses. There will be no guises. There will be no masks. You're going to stand there revealed in his light. And the emphasis in this verse is on deeds in the body and what we have done. You ever work, play that justifying game where you said, yeah, I did that, but I didn't mean to do that. Yeah, that's what I did, but that's not who I am. Well, he's going to look at what you did. And it's not going to be a light matter. And he's not only going to look at what you did, but in 1 Corinthians 4, 5, it says he's going to bring to light the things hidden in the darkness. And he's going to uncover your motives. So it's going to be motives and deeds and even the things you hid that nobody else knows about. They're going to be revealed. You're going to appear. You're going to be made manifest in his presence. And then the other word here is recompensed, which means to receive back. It's the same word used in Ephesians 6, 8, where it says, whatever good thing each one does, he will receive back from the Lord. And so this is going to be a time of reward and loss. This verse and others give me the indication that we're going to stand before the Lord. And we're going to get a review of our life. You think HD is good. He's going to have something better. A review of our life. And we're going to find out what was pleasing to God. Romans 14.10 says, We shall all stand before the judgment seat of God so that each one shall give an account of himself to God. And I guarantee you it will be a time of surprise. There will be things that I think are very pleasing to God that I'm going to find out I had the wrong motive in. I'm going to find out in the words of Matthew 6 that I was practicing my righteousness before men to be honored by them, to be seen by them. And in that case, Jesus says, you've got your reward, the applause of man. There will be things I did that I thought were insignificant, and God's going to say, that pleased me, that honored me. I'm going to reward you for that. Will we be punished? No. The Bible says in Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. This is not an issue of salvation. It's an issue of service and reward before the Lord. Read again 1 Corinthians chapter 3 about the fact that there's going to come a day when God is going to test the quality of each man's work. And because of his work, he's either going to receive a reward or loss. And even when he loses everything, he's going to be saved, yet so is by fire. I love that analogy. Jesus is the foundation. We're building on it. He says we build on it with Wood, hay, stubble, gold, silver, precious stones. 
Wood, hay, and stubble grow out of the earth. That's a figure of things we do in the strength of our own flesh. Gold, silver, precious stones are in the earth, but they're not part of the earth. And they can withstand the fire. They are figures of what the Spirit of God produces in our life. I don't know about you, but reading about the judgment seat of Christ motivates me. Fear motivates me. I fear the Lord. I fear the thought of standing before Him and having my deeds and motives and hidden things made manifest to Jesus Christ, just me and Him. I fear what John warns us about in 1 John 2.28, that when Jesus comes back, some of us will shrink away in shame at His coming. I fear that. I fear the thought of standing before the Lord Jesus and having Him say to me those words in Galatians 6.12, you made a good showing in the flesh. You looked good. Other people were impressed. You practiced your righteousness before men and you got your reward. That's it. All you had was wood, hay, and stubble. I fear that. I fear the thought of standing before the Lord Jesus and having him say, this is what you could have been and this is what you could have done if you had just walked by faith, if you had just depended on me, if you had just walked in the power of my spirit. I fear getting to the end of my life and realizing I wasted it, that it didn't matter to God. Now, some people don't like to talk about the fear of the Lord. Let me tell you something. Fear is a motivating factor in everybody's life. You either fear the Lord or you fear man. It's one of the two. In fact, let me show you this. I was looking through John. Go back to John chapter 7. And it's interesting how this thread kind of runs through here. John chapter 7 and verse 13. People are talking about Jesus, but verse 13 says, Yet no one was speaking openly of him for fear of the Jews. They didn't talk about Jesus because they were afraid of man. Look at chapter 9 and verse 19. And they questioned them, saying, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How does he now see? And his parents answered and said to them, we know that this is our son and we know that he was born blind, but how he now sees, we don't know. Or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him, he's of age, he'll speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. John chapter 19 and verse 38 After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, asked for Jesus' body. Why was he a secret disciple? 
fear of man. Who was his comrade? Verse 39, Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night. Why did he come by night? Fear of man. And then John 20, verse 19. So when it was evening on the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus showed up and said, Peace be with you. Paul would later say in Galatians 1.10, If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. I can't be both. And Paul gives his motive in 1 Thessalonians 2.4. He says, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. Why do I please God? Because he sees it all and he knows it all. Fear is a proper motive. Fear is a proper motive. Proverbs 1.7 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. In other words, if someone does not fear the Lord... He has not even begun to come to know him. Why? Because he's an awesome God. Listen to the words of Proverbs 2. My son, if you receive my words and treasure my commands within you so that you incline your ear to wisdom and apply your heart to understanding, yes, if you cry out for discernment and lift up your voice for understanding, if you seek her as silver and search for her, As for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. You see, you won't know God without fearing him. I love the disciples' response in Mark chapter 4. It's one of my favorite miracles where the disciples are in a boat on the Sea of Galilee in a storm and they wake Jesus up to tell him they're perishing And Jesus rebukes the wind, and he tells the sea, hush. And the storm stops. And listen to what happens at the end of that, verse 40. And he said to them, why are you afraid? How is it that you have no faith? They became very much afraid and said to one another, who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him. They were afraid of the storm. Now the storm's gone, and they're more afraid. Why? Because they're afraid of the one who controls the storm. And I would suggest to you this morning that we should be in the same boat, fearfully asking, who is this? Who is this Christ? who controls everything. He is awesome. He causes me to tremble in my heart because I can never comprehend all about him. He is greater than I thought. Jeremiah 10, 6 and 7 says, Inasmuch as there is none like you, O Lord, you are great and your name is great in might. Who would not fear you, O King of the nations? Revelation 15.4 says, Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? In Malachi 1.6, God speaks and says, A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am your father, where is my honor? And if I am your master, 
Where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts. Jeremiah 5.22 says, Do you not fear me? Says the Lord. Will you not tremble at my presence? When's the last time you trembled at the presence of the Lord? You say, but Dan, we live in a day of grace. And how can you have fear and grace go hand in hand? Well, they go hand in hand because guess what? You would never know the fear of the Lord apart from grace. Unbelievers don't fear God. They just live their lives. You can be thankful that God has awakened your heart to tremble at his word. John Newton had it right in his song, Amazing Grace. He says, it was grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fears relieved. Do you fear him this morning? Let me close with the words of Mike Iaconelli. Powerful statement. Listen carefully. The tragedy of modern faith is that we no longer are capable of being terrified. We aren't afraid of God. We aren't afraid of Jesus. We aren't afraid of the Holy Spirit. As a result, we have ended up with a need-centered gospel that attracts thousands and transforms no one. I would like to suggest that the church become a place of terror again, a place where God continually has to tell us, fear not, a place where our relationship with God is not a simple belief or a doctrine or a theology but it is God's burning presence in our lives. I am suggesting that the tame God of relevance be replaced by the God whose very presence shatters our egos into dust, burns our sin into ashes, and strips us naked to reveal the real person within. The church needs to become a gloriously dangerous place where nothing is safe in God's presence except us. Nothing, including our plans, our agendas, our priorities, our politics, our money, our security, our comfort, our possessions, our needs. Our world is longing to see people whose God is big and holy and frightening and gentle and tender, and ours. A God whose love frightens us into his strong and powerful arms, where he longs to whisper those terrifying words, I love you. Wow. Is that your perspective of God today? Knowing the fear of the Lord Are you motivated to serve him? Let's examine our hearts in honesty as we close this morning. I'm going to have the praise team come back. We're going to sing to the Lord, and as we do, I'm just going to ask you to be honest before him. Let his light shine on you and open up your heart to not only your deeds, but your motives and the hidden things that you don't want anybody else to see.
and let him have access to those, those today and burn us free of those things that hinder our walk with him. Let's be honest and real with God this morning as we sing together. Let's stand as we do.